Welcome to this Women in Safety podcast. This is a show that provides a supportive space for women in safety careers. We break down the barriers and provide opportunities for growth. Make sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and join us. Now, here's your Women in Safety podcast host, Tamara Paris. Hi, and welcome to another amazing discussion on the Women in Safety podcast. We've got a great group of speakers joining us today, and we're going to be looking at 2001 and beyond, and how are we setting the stage for the future generations in the workplace. I've got joining me today, Tanya Hewitt, who is the founder and CEO of Beyond Safety Compliance, Kevin Whithan, who is the Senior Legal Director and Group Ethics and Compliance Director at TI Fluid Systems, and Mary Shirley, who is the Global Head of Culture and Integrity and Compliance Education at Ferenius Medical Care North America. Now let's get into the show. So welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited that uh, we're going to be having this conversation today. Now, Tanya, this conversation was your idea. So I wanted you to kind of warm up our listeners to share what it was you wanted us to be talking about. Well, when we had um, started talking about this, Tamara, where we had, I think I had sent you an article on uh, instead of wishing for normal coming out of this pandemic, let's wish for something else. And uh, that sparked uh, a conversation between you and I about, oh, well, maybe we could look for something else. And what would that be? And I think that's uh, a good starting point uh, for this. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, that's right. We were coming out of 2020. And for so many of us, it was very uncertain in the year. And, and you're right, like our discussion was like, hmm, we have such a opportunity right now to do a reset button and kind of create for 2021 and beyond the stage, like really set the stage for the future of work generations. And I think that's so, so exciting in order to be in this place in history, right? Where essentially so many things are broken, we get to fix them, right? And, and in a new generational way, I'm very excited. And so that's why I'm like thrilled that we're having this conversation. And in, in our discussion, we also talked about the need to consider all the stakeholders, just ab like above just shareholders, like for businesses, we were discussing to be looking at um, what can we be doing that's good for society and we need to be more geared to be innovative and supportive. So I wanted to throw that out and see, you know, what are people's thoughts? Just jump into the conversation when you have an idea. That's a great question. Um, I think during the pandemic, there's already things been happening. You know, we're in the pandemic and in March, almost a year ago, can you believe that? Uh, and then a few months in black lives matter, or it wasn't really black lives matter. It was a killing of George Floyd, which then reignited black lives matter. I think, uh, which then set in a train, uh, in motion, a number of other things and, you know, corporates started coming out within days and some within weeks of, we need to do something now. This is actually bad we're going to stand up, which I don't think I'd ever really seen before. Even with the Me Too movement, it wasn't in the same way as what happened uh, following George Floyd's murder. And I think um, that's ignited a conversations around many different things, systemic racism, what the what's a corporate's role or company's role in society now? Um, because traditionally, this is not the sort of thing that they want to get involved in. That's for governments and that's for politicians to deal with they're in the business of doing business. Uh, and that's sort of pushing towards the full uh, stakeholder capitalism and things like ESG as well. Um, I, I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Kevin. Um, and, and for me, it boils down to um, essentially civility in the workplace. Um, incivility in the workplace sounds like a fluffy topic, 
Um, Christine Porath has studied this and there are in fact a lot of very concrete negative effects when we don't treat each other um, with respect, with dignity and with care. Um, and essentially what we see with things like um, Black Lives Matter is the absolute extreme. Um, and so if we think to a core of how is it that we want to treat each other, how do we value looking after each other as human beings, then ideally we don't get to those extreme points. And so for me, it's getting to that root cause and forming a common understanding as to how we want to be and how we want to act as a workplace. And I think that feeds very nicely into what you were saying, Kevin, because that's a reputational risk issue as well and a branding issue. And so you start bringing in various different departments that will have a vested interest. Those of us in compliance roles uh, care about reputational interest, um, ethical behavior, um, communications, PR teams care about how your company is viewed externally and the types of commitments it makes and how it should be accountable to those commitments. How are you going to review and measure those moving forward? So. For me, um, if we boil it right down to its very basic, it's about civility in the workplace. And I'm gonna even push back even a little bit here and say, I think it's about civility in society. I think it's actually gone beyond Absolutely. the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Like we knew, we knew that people were being treated um, unfairly in the workplace, but marginally, marginalized individuals in particular individuals who had different backgrounds ethnically, we saw it. And for a lot of us, it was frustrating, but we didn't know how to speak up in the workplace because the workplace can be actually a very disempowering place. In itself, it can be very oppressive. But now that things are happening out in our communal space, in our society, we're, we don't feel oppressed to speak up when we really disagree with something. And so I think that in itself is unearthing that for some of us, at least me and here in Canada, um, when I was seeing the horrors that are going on, to wanna speak out, wanna have these discussions. What are other people's thoughts? I guess one thing that I might volunteer there, uh, Tamara, is that um, workplaces don't have to be oppressive. Workplaces can actually be very healthy places where people do feel valued, can, can have their uh, opinions and their, their gut feelings voiced and not feel as though they're going to be punished for it. Furthermore, they can be places where people can actually learn and grow and develop as, as people. And um, the, but if we perpetuate the idea that work is just a drudgery for a paycheck, we're not gonna make any progress in being able to recognize that workplaces can play a far larger role, both in our personal lives as employees and in society overall um, to, to a greater good, so. And so are we looking here then at business ethics? Are we looking at the what is guiding the principles in how um, companies are running their businesses? I think to go back to what you were saying before, we're looking at what makes a good human being ethics and then bringing that into the workforce, either as managers, as executives, as frontline staff, we all have a role to play in that. But I think most notably, of course, anyone in leadership sets the tone. So you have a higher degree of responsibility on you and um, for, for psychological safety in the workplace, it's all about how you welcome others to function and operate around you. So I, I think Kevin is a fantastic example of a servant leader, <clears throat> excuse me, where there is an environment where people's um, values are taken into account. They're specifically requested. They feel like they can say something um, without being bidden for it or even just um, punished in, in some kind of way because they've had the nerve to speak up. And so um, I think there are examples already exist 
to a certain extent, we're, we're there with individuals, but this isn't something that we can just expect in the workplace at this point in time. Yeah, it's one of those things, right? A workplace has been doing things over and over and over in a certain way. And then it itself has become woke because people within that organization, it's not going to be everybody. It's not going to be an entire leadership team. It's usually one or two people who've like, hold on, we maybe need to do things differently, even if it's for PR reasons. But I was having this conversation the other day with um, Alison Taylor from Ethical Systems. And she, you know, I was saying, you know, it does frustrate me that I see a lot of grand statements, brilliant purpose statements coming out, or this is what we're going to do in the, in the diversity and inclusion space. And then I don't hear much more after that. Uh, or you hear stories of, well, actually, yeah, looks lovely on your newspapers, but the reality is I'm suing this company because there was intrinsic racism throughout this entire organization. It's like, well, hold on. Uh, that doesn't really marry up with the story that I've just been told. And I think uh, it's gonna take time because you can't just tell people we're now changed. We're now this different organization. They have to live and breathe it. And that's that's the ethics side, you know, like both myself and Mary, we, we deal with this on a daily basis in terms of compliance and ethics. And for, for a number of years, it was very much compliance. And it comes, I think, from around the dot-com bubble uh, bursting back in 2000, around 2000, 2001. Then you had WorldCom, Enron. How are we going to stop this? Regulation, regulation, regulation. So it created a whole industry. You know, the, the, the big four started uh, selling Sarbanes-Oxley experts. Nobody was an expert because it literally just come out, but that's what they were selling you. We, we'll, we'll tell you how to put the processes in. And, we, and they did. Uh, and then there was a focus on following the rules in the organizations. This is what the law says. We're not going to sign off because I've got personal liability now. So it was, you became really narrowly focused, but only on one specific thing. And it was a black and white. Like, this is the law. These are our policies. This is, you do this and this happens. And if you, if you follow it, we're all good. But that's not quite how it panned out because you look at the global financial crisis which really was only a few years later and that I think uh, was a bit of a tipping point because then uh, banks were being bailed out the financial industry wasn't viewed in the same vein and capitalism I think took a big hit at that point uh, and I think what I believe it was at that point also you've got a new generation just hitting the workplace and they're seeing things about the organizations their parents are in parents were still working in and their parents are losing jobs and and they're looking at it saying well we need to do something different but then fast forward another five or six years and you've got the vw scandal you've got planes falling out the sky uh with boeing and these are still big issues but what's changing and I think it's because we still focus too much on compliance and now we're realizing that hasn't worked we've tried it for almost 20 years and the focus on that isn't working so well we need to be more ethical we need to be good companies we need to be good for the world we need to be good for our people but it starts internally how are we going to do that and it's not like business ethics hasn't been around from what I understand it's been taught for decades in classes and in university classes and MBA programs so why isn't it happening? I think it's because there's that mix of what the purpose of an organization is. And, you know, uh, is it Milton Friedman who came out with the, you know, uh, it's all about the shareholder and shareholder returns. I think we're now seeing that gradual change. And actually I'll say gradual, but I think it's an accelerating change towards a much more stakeholder based capitalism, which mm -hmm. therefore to be sustainable needs solid ethics. And that comes from, that's not a thing you can touch. It's not a rules. You can't write it down, be ethical. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a feeling. And that comes from building trust and psychological safety. That's the, that's the key at the beginning. And so I wanted to pull Mary and Tanya into this too. What are your thoughts about what Kevin is saying? 
I, I agree. And I think part of that as well is hiring really carefully. You know, what Kevin was getting at is you can't teach people to be a good person at heart, right? You either are or you aren't for the most part. So a way in which you can do this is during the hiring process, present people with ethical dilemmas, see how they respond to them, consider their thought process, ask them to detail what's going through their mind. Because when you start off on the right foot, it's so much easier to continue on that way, right? Start as you mean to go on. And yeah, you will make mistakes, absolutely. But it is, um, I think, a, a, a prudent way to go about it as you think right back to where do we control who we want to work with and who is a part of our community. It's in the hiring process. And so if we use that as a gatekeeping function to find out who really does live the values that our company seeks to promote and that we say that we're going to live by day to day, we need to hire the people who can abide by those values. Absolutely, Mary. And I, I, just to, to echo that, uh, you know, Charles Schwab, when he has uh, hired, he has gone to a restaurant and gotten there in advance and asked the server, I'm going to be meeting somebody here, please give them a different order than what they order. He is not, he's not asking for financial technical skill. He's looking for how they react. Are they going to just pretend that nothing has happened? Or are they going to blow up and, and you know, say how, and, you know, how, what a stupid restaurant this is and all this kind of thing? All of this gives huge insight into the character of who you're going to be hiring. Furthermore, um, the organizational healthy companies do not treat hiring as a one-off exercise. It is not just a two-hour you know, okay, you're in front of this panel and we ask you questions, you answer them kind of thing. It is hiring, it, it is seeing the interaction outside of the workplace, in the workplace and outside of the workplace. On, I, I can remember hearing one person talk about having seven touch points before they were hired. Those touch points included bringing his family into the office, having some people from the office go to his home. Like the, it, it, we're talking about hiring people, not workers. And if we can get into this understanding that um, at present, most organizations couldn't do a talent inventory if they tried because they do not know who they've hired. We, we need to change this to being able to understand who they have hired. If they do that and they understand the capacities and the strengths in their workforce, imagine, all of the challenges that they're going to, that all companies under, undergo in, the, in their growth and development, they have a huge arsenal of talent that they otherwise would never have tapped into. And they would be able to start using people in their, in their capacities of their, you know, what Pat Lencioni's calls their working geniuses. And everybody is going to be far more fulfilled in such, such an environment. I love that meal test. Um, and I, I believe the statistic is 86% uh, of managers would not hire a prospective candidate who was rude to the reception desk. Um, and so we, we, we know that people value this type of thing. And, you know, if, if a, a front desk staff member said, did you know that your candidate was, you know, very dismissive of me or whatever, we would take that into account. But what I love about that meal story is that it's a very proactive way of, of putting an ethical dilemma in front of the candidate and seeing how they would react. And so I think that's what we need to do is be very conscious about assessing for this kind of thing. And I think in return as well, you know, there is nothing worse than a company being disrespectful in the hiring process. Um, it is so common these days, you know, to, to interview multiple rounds and then not even get a response back that you've missed out on the job. So we need to think very carefully. Uh, it's a two-way street. We expect people to be um, ethical and kind when they approach us, but we must equally treat people with 
the same kind of respect that we're asking for. And that means that in the hiring process, for us as hiring managers, we need to remember that, again, this is not a worker in front of us. It's a human being who has spent time, set their hopes potentially on getting this particular job. The least we owe them is common courtesy and respect in terms of how we work with them, even if we don't work with them in an official employment capacity, but just as an applicant, uh, we need to in turn treat them how we're asking them to treat our company should they join us. I, I was on a webinar recently where it was said that we instinctively recognize hypocrisy. We, we feel it, we smell it, we, we, we actually react to it. So the more that we um, in, our, in our organizations realize this, that the more, um, the more we, we espouse the do as I say, not as I do, the worse we're making things. We have to try to be more aligned with, well, these aforementioned values, which um, are not, not just written on the wall. We can't have these things as just checkbox exercises. Overall, we've, we've become a very um, tell, tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to know kind of, kind of society. And we need to break out of this. Totally agree. Yeah, I, I was going to say actually on that, that is um, it's actually very deep. It goes directly to the soul of an organization, but it goes to the soul of the human being. Because no matter how we fight it, we, we have a purpose. Whatever we may not even know we have, but we do. And we have values, which sometimes we don't even recognize ourselves as these are our values, these are our belief systems. But all of these things actually uh, affect how we act and how we behave. And sometimes, particularly in a work situation, you can actually be pulled away from your values. And you can do a great job. That doesn't mean you can do, you're going to do a bad job or do what's required of you, but it doesn't sit well. And, you know, as a lawyer, I often, I, I have had this, you know, I actually think I was excelling at work, but internally something didn't feel right. And it was only till I realized there are, you know, there's things I have to do, which I don't like to do. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna, I'm gonna stop doing them. But what it means is I might have to ask some questions about why, because that's part of it is, I need to understand why am I being asked to do this? What's the purpose behind this? And sometimes even challenge that. And it doesn't, and even then I may still have to do something, but at least I've got a better understanding. And I ha then have to make peace with myself. Of this, this is my job, you know, it's not every day, a beautiful weather. Uh, there are gonna be days that rain and I have to have that umbrella and know that the sun will come out again. So it's okay. And I wanted to go back for the hiring process for one moment, because I think there's also another piece to add on to that. What I've noticed in, in my experience in the career is in respectful workplaces, they will actually invite those who will be working with the hiree into the hiring process to engage with them. They'll, they'll bring in the team so that the team can engage. Whereas companies that are dismissive or don't really follow their true ethics, um, they will keep it in a silo in HR and maybe a few key executive people. And then you have, unfortunately, an individual that shows up that doesn't um, connect with the rest of the group in some way. Maybe they don't have the skills that the group was actually needing to facilitate success. And that in itself can create a lot of um, internal group dynamic issues to deal with. What are your thoughts around that? There's a great book that did an experiment. Uh, I think it's Daniel Coyle, Culture Code. Uh, he talks about sort of situations like that. And it comes down to, you know, Mary said, mentioned uh, psychological safety. If you have a strong psychological safety in your organization and that happens, either uh, well if it's strong your team unit remains strong and that the, the person who becomes disruptive of that group environment will either be sucked into that team dynamic in a positive way or they will choose to leave that team dynamic but that psychological safety 
to have that, they have to be inclusive. So they would be trying to pull that person in. Where you don't, where you have weak psychological safety, the person comes in, is disruptive, and it actually disrupts everybody else. And they end up mimicking, as a group, mimicking the weaker uh, elements uh, behavior. And then it erodes. So you, you, you erode an entire team. Uh, but the outset was they were not a strong team anyway, because they didn't have that connectivity. And that's why it's so critical to build that. And this culture code book, it's, it's a fascinating read, but it talks about building great cultures and all of the different experiments. And this was one and where they actually had an actor going in and he, he, he would be so disruptive and it, it would show up meeting after meeting, it would eventually, the team were mimicking him. But then he went into a team which really had solid psychological safety, you know. And when you looked from the outside, you look, oh, these, these guys are just, it's just chaos. Like they're talking over each other. But there was actually a dynamic there that worked, that they all spoke of equal amount roughly. And, and uh, they connected on a way which wasn't just superficial work focused, but they connected on the human element level. And no matter how much he tried to disrupt them, they kept inviting him in. They kept inviting him in and until eventually he's just like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And he walked off. It was just like, and that's a, that's a great example of why you need to focus on these things. And it's, it's really easy to talk about it. And it's not like it hasn't been around for a long time. It has, it's just, I think all of these different world elements going on and particularly things like last year really have brought this out into the open now and every everywhere I go people I hear psychological safety I see books on it I see people talking about it. we're talking about it uh think about five years ago did you even hear about that term probably not yeah I think that that's super critical in, in, in terms of the fact that you're right this kind of thing has been around for a really long time and we we know just without looking at any kind of scientific study we know that working with people who make us feel good, make us better at what we do and make us go home and happier at the end of the day. But the problem is we have traditionally valued a certain type of leadership. And that's tended to be very often um, what men have crafted as being the way in which leaders look, how they should sound and what they should do. And I think an interesting um almost a social experiment that wasn't actually an experiment is just looking um, anecdotally at what's happened in New Zealand. We're on to our second female prime minister now, and she has turned leadership on its head and she's focused on values such as empathy and well-being as a very um, holistic goal for New Zealanders. So she's not just focused on things like the economy. Um, she wanted to deal with things like high suicide rates. And so you may then ask, okay, well, is that different type of, of leadership working? And I would say, yes. Um, she was very convincingly re-elected for a second term recently. So in New Zealand, we also had uh, elections in, in recent times. And so um, I think part of what the problem is, is the, 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 the very tried and true thing of, you know, we, we've, we do this because it's how we've always done it pertaining to leadership has put us on this very long history of leadership being a certain way. And we've only just started to see, hang on a second, you can adjust a few things and the world does not completely fall apart. In fact, it might make us stronger, it might make us better and we might be more successful. So I think that's a really valid point that you bring Kevin. And it's one of the things that we see in compliance, you know, oh, you know, we, we don't change that because it's the way we've always done it. That's very often a red flag for a, a compliance risk. But now potentially it's also a red flag for, isn't this a, a way in which we live our lives kind of a risk? If we don't try a new way, if we don't open our minds to something looking a little different to what we're used to, which may have in fact been entirely focused on gender bias, um, we're missing out on so much. So I think this is a, a great stride that we're seeing where, as we talked about earlier, this is a really pivotal moment in time where we're likely to see accelerated change. And I'm so hopeful that it's going to be changed for the better. Just to echo what Mary was talking about, um, one of the, the values that um, 
a lot of this this movement of, of hopeful for change I'm hearing over and over again is the importance of humility. So vulnerability and humility have traditionally been seen as weaknesses, but in this view, they are seen as strengths. They are seen as increased self-awareness, as, as C.S. Lewis had said, thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself kind of thing. So that is uh, the understanding of humility. It is the truth of things. And the ideal team player, according to Pat Lencioni, is humble. That is the most important virtue that they have. And they're also hungry, you know, having a strong work ethic, not being, uh, you know, not satisfied with a minimum bar and being emotionally intelligent, understanding both themselves and how to interface with others. And imagine if we were to start, instead of the technical skills, which can be taught always, we start to look for this kind of thing, which as you said, Mary Shelley, is more of a, um, a person and, and their character kind of thing in order to know uh, that we actually have, you know, people that we can count on and rely on in our businesses. Yeah, that's some great points there. Um, I do think, you know, like bringing those people in, as Mary was saying, it's hard though, because going back to the vulnerability, the humility, the humbleness, uh, they were considered a weakness, but also to, to Mary's point, that's what they were considered uh, feminine traits. Um, but actually, when you analyze how hard it is to do that stuff, it is deep. Like to self-analyze, to peel back your own layers, which to understand your purpose. And I, that's why I say like, you can't just stick a mission statement out because you think you know what it is. You actually have to peel back the layers of an organization to understand what the purpose is. Don't just think you can post something out there and that's your mission. It's not it's just like your personal purpose. Like you have to unpick yourself and that takes, that's hard, hard work. And having done it, the tears flow. And I think that's a positive thing because you're understanding yourself and you, you get that self-realization. So to, to call it a weak thing was just, uh, it was a lazy, uh, it's a laziness, but it was also because it was, as you said, it was a, it was an image of men. Men are supposed to be strong. So therefore that's what a great leader is. Uh, so it's, a, it is unsurprising now, I think that we are seeing a change because quite frankly, we have looked at a failed model and even certain types of success, you can look at it and go, but is that truly success? I mean, what do you define success as? Like, there's so much short-termism and yet now there's a push for, well, we need ESG. We want sustainable businesses. We don't want businesses that are going to be out of business in 15 years. We're not in it for that. And you've got a new generation of uh, young people. And actually you'd say the millennial generation is getting into leadership now. They are taking, they've taken a different view. And I believe that's a positive thing because they, it's, it's no longer uh, if, it is just when. And companies that truly embrace that today are going to be around. They're going to be the sustainable ones. They're going to be trying. And, you know, that doesn't mean your purpose doesn't change. Like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, in 100 years time, somebody else is leading this podcast and uh, they've gone, well, climate change is done. What's next? You know, that's what we want. I want, I want to, I want my children to, go into the workplace and diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't a selling point. It's the norm and because it, and yeah. it should be, and that's the way it should be. You know, that point on, on weakness as well. Um, I think you really only have to worry about showing a weakness or being, or admitting to an area of deficiency if you have nothing else to offer. Because if you have a track record of accomplishments uh, in so many other different areas and you're like, yeah, this is what I'm great at and you've seen me be great at that, I'm not great at this and I'm working on it or I'd love for someone to help me on it, um, that's just one thing. Or, you know, it's a relatively small portion of you. So being 
um, humble about uh, you, what you're good at and, and recognizing and being open about what you're not strong at, as hard as it is, it shouldn't be that hard because we shouldn't expect perfection and, you know, 10 out of 10 for everyone. Um, and so I think you really only have to worry about jumping into that exercise and, you know, diving deep, as Kevin mentioned, peeling back those layers, if you have nothing to offer. And I don't think we can say that about anyone. So don't be afraid. Dive right in. I guess a couple of things that we're up against is uh, a society of toxic positivity, where, as Kevin had said, you know, the sun does not shine every day. And yet there's a, there are a lot of people out there who cannot admit that, who must feel as though, you know, there is no dark side to anything. And uh, so that, that's one thing that, that is a, a problem. And another is that what we're talking about here, like who are, where are the movies that, that talk about this? Where is the fiction that people are reading that, that understand this? Where, where are the business articles that celebrate the, the, the leaders who do this? Where, where are, the, the, where are the, the news programs that talk about this kind of thing? They're, they're, all of the movies and the, and the fiction and things that I can think of go in the opposite direction. You know, they're, they're idolizing what we don't want to idolize. So we have to start changing what we want to see in, in our, you know, in our popular culture in order to be able to have that reflected in a larger sphere. I think we are starting to see some of that in popular culture. One of the things that I've noticed in the past several weeks is television series have come back in the United States. Um, some of them have very squarely dealt with things like the pandemic, the unequal treatment of people with color, and they have gone for it head on, you know, to the point where I've been in tears watching some of the shows because it's so relatable. And I think part of it as well is keeping an open mind um, in terms of keeping our eyes open. And, and by that, I mean, when I moved to the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, three and a half years ago, I, I couldn't watch the news because one night of news in Massachusetts was literally a month's worth of news in New Zealand. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't handle it. My, my, my mind wasn't used to hearing all this bad stuff at once. And so I stopped watching the news and that of course, had its own implications. Um, and so sometimes I, I get sent things by people that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And something that just broke me recently, uh, so I'm of Asian heritage and um, uh, attacks, um, physical attacks on Asians in America have, have increased rapidly over the last several months. Um, and, and that kind of thing, it, it just ripped through me and I had trouble you know, processing and, and moving past that. Um, so one thing I would say is that we also have to be receptive, right? So I'm only receiving that bit of news, which is cutting through me because someone had sent it to me because I'm deliberately <laughs> trying not to watch too much news because I'm, I'm not used to it. Um, but sometimes we need to be looking for it. So keeping our eyes open and not shutting them to what's really there and around us and then understanding how to process. Sometimes we cannot process things that are just so egregious on our own and figuring out what are the support systems available to us to not only, not that you can feel better about it, but so that you can proactively move towards doing something that may be helpful to addressing the problem. I think as America moves forward now, is listening, which is actually one of those great skills that they talk about in business and what leaders need to have. It's less of me, more of you. I'm here to listen and understand and process. And we may not agree on everything, but it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's about just taking it in. You know, as a male, uh, I work on this every day. I literally have a reminder on my phone every day uh, about listening uh, because I need to do it. And, you know, my wife has said to me things like, uh, you're never going to know now. And I realized I've just cut over what she was saying. So I have to remind myself and I work on it every day because it's one of those skills that I really struggle with. And I don't know why, because I remind myself every day and I have been for the last few years, but yet I'm still trying to do it. 
but that's a skill we're going to have to as the world learn to have because we may have in the us there may have been a change of administration but it was close uh when you talk about the multiple millions of people voting in a certain way um in the uk brexit same thing and you know i'm one way someone else is there i have to understand what made you go what made you make that choice like why was it we we i think the world needs to generally get out of our pockets of um this is what i'm absorbing and i noticed that when i was in the us i was very much that way in fact i remember commenting to somebody i said i don't get it i haven't seen one during the run up to the elections i haven't seen one republican advert i, I don't know what you guys are talking about i've not seen it all i see is the biden stuff i don't see anything from trump at all after saying that weirdly enough i saw one advert so i thought alexa was listening to me or something like that <laughs> uh which is a completely different story there but this is it's a good thing uh we need to listen to people but as leaders that's a good thing to to be doing and i think it goes back to that human and empathy it's it's it it feeds into that you can't be empathetic if you don't listen yeah, I think it's that consultation aspect as well that Tamara was getting at at the beginning when talking about how if you're hiring someone new for a team, it's really helpful to get key stakeholders involved in that process. So listening is, is so critical to the wider consultation process. And I think that's critical to psychological safety. I guess one thing that I just want to add uh, to this discussion is um, a bias that uh, we need to start recognizing it uh, more and more in these types of discussions. We have a negative bias. We tend to be attracted to the bad things. And of course, this, this has, um, you know, uh, lots of evolutionary justification. There's lots of, you know, uh, evidence that this was very helpful. But uh, we're now in a lifestyle that doesn't need that negative bias nearly to the extent that we needed it before. Um, the media um, is quite good at being able to uh, recognize this. As you said, Mary, the, you know, the news has, has exploited this for years. If, if we only get good news and things that work and things that are, you know, uh, of things that are, are good in society, we're more likely to shut off the television than we are if they are showing how dysfunctional we are and how, you know, the bad things and the, and the plane crashes and things. So um, that's something that we have to recognize about ourselves that, you know, if we can try to suppress the desire for the gore and the, and the, the negativity, we might start to appreciate not toxic positivity, but good goodness in the world. So, I might just be weird, but um, I follow a page on Facebook called Wholesome Meets the Internet, and it's full of feel-good stories. So that kind of thing makes me happy. Um, I don't know if I'm an outlier in that respect, but what you said, um, I thought was really interesting, Tanya, because I, I was just listening to one of uh, Adam Grant's podcasts. I think it was one with Simon Sinek. And they talked about how we perceive people who provide a lot of criticism as being smarter than those who don't. So if you're marking up someone's work in, in the office and you, you know, you're redlining like crazy and one person who's thinking, hmm, I personally wouldn't have said it like that, but it's not wrong, so I'm not going to touch it. That second person is going to be viewed as less intellectually capable, even though they might not be, and they might actually be a nicer person in terms of how they're treating the, the owner of the work. So we do seem to have this negativity bias. Um, but of course, part of what's helpful when we have bias is simply being awake to that thought and recognizing, hang on, I have this. Maybe I should think about whether it's affecting me in this moment while I make this decision, while I'm looking at my colleague's work, um, while I'm supervising someone else. And um, 
lauding people who um, are smart because they've made a significant contribution. They've innovated in some way. They've fixed something that was broken, not the person <clears throat> who said, this work is awful and I hate it. And that's all that they have to contribute. So part of that is us as well, adjusting to those biases and promoting the things that we want to see, promoting the things that we value instead of letting biases take us down. Some really good points there, Mary. Um, on that, actually, I was thinking about it, just going back to what uh, Tanya said, and it made me think about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. And you know how you do these um, engagement surveys all the time? And what they actually, uh, I worked with this company, the Happiness Index, and looking at that and trying to create, they were trying to create a neuroscience-based question to really target, like, hold on, a lot of companies do pretty well on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, their scores are, are, are okay. Like, you can, there's always room for improvement. You can, it's, and it's a bar that should be always moving. But a lot of, when you've got those, the majority, they don't necessarily give you they they they're giving you their experience right so their engagement so yeah if i'm a a white middle-aged man i think probably there isn't that much issue uh but the um maybe black female junior intern may have a completely different experience so their idea was about working on uh something that amplifies the voice because the engagement survey essentially you give the vote to majority uh, whereas so you need to have both and that's um part of the going back to that listening point is it's part of that is you've got to actually listen but then you've got to dig a little bit because there were voices that get drowned out and, and you know like what you're saying mary on the on the two people you've got one who's marking up who's seen as really smart and adding value and the person who looks at it and goes do you know what? I'm going to do them professional courtesy of not completely changing this as well. Uh, it it works, so that's fine. They're not seen in the same positive light. I think that's the is the same thing really around that. You need to give that. You need to move away and go. Oh yeah, why didn't they do anything? Oh, because it's actually professional courtesy. That's a good thing to, to do. They weren't. They don't want to embarrass the other person. And it works, so fine. Well, I think even a lot of the time for those very harsh writers is that the, the, the piece of work is even potentially good, but because it wasn't said in the exact same words or with the exact same approach that that particular probably type A, and I am a type A person, so no, no disrespect there, um, has decided is correct because they don't see that people doing things in a different way to them. And of course, this goes again for diversity, the more likely it is that we have different backgrounds, the more likely it is that my approach is going to be different to yours. So me having grown up in, uh, born in Hong Kong, grown up in New Zealand, lived in Asia, the Middle East, now the United States, my approach is probably going to be very different to the average American who has never lived outside of the same town that they grew up in. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that except for when someone says, no, Mary, you're, you're different to me and your approach is different and therefore it's wrong. So I think that we, we need to be careful with even just saying, oh, it's a professional courtesy. In fact, they, they might be saying, yeah, there's, there's actually nothing wrong with this work because even though I wouldn't have written it this way, it's still good. And I wanted to get Tanya's view on this and then look at... Um are key drivers for culture in a company? And how can we know if um, more of our employees, including senior leaders, are being socially conscious and ethically driven? So Tanya, can you, I, I saw you unmute there, if you could share your point. Well, maybe I'll just start um, on, on what you just raised. Um, Kevin had talked about engagement surveys, which are pervasive, uh, employee engagement surveys. So uh, Pat Lencioni has said, um, by the time your engagement survey, and I live this so I know, by the time your engagement survey reveals a problem, a pretty systemic problem, 
your good people have already left. So, I mean, if that's the way you are monitoring um, employee engagement, it's a pretty blunt instrument that isn't all that accurate and it doesn't put you ahead of the, of the problems that you might be facing. There, um, on one podcast, he had said, uh, Pat Lencioni had said, joy in the workplace is what you're looking for. So he had talked about, now this was back pre-pandemic, but talked about how people come to work. Watch them as they close the doors of their cars. Watch them as they walk towards the front door. You know, just observe their body language. See, you know, how they are engaging with, with, the, with the idea of going to work. That will give you... Um, or maybe how they uh, show up on a Zoom call. How how are they how are they engaging? How you know? See how they show up. That will give you far more information than you know a Likert survey on some kind of uh, predetermined question that they're likely not answering truthfully anyway. They might not be able to give uh, an answer that they want to give because the question isn't worded in a way that they understand. Um, they'd like to be able to give more context to this, but there's no opportunity to do that. Any, any, any of these problems with the traditional surveys. So it, it might be, um, you know, more invaluable to be able to take a look at different ways of, of getting at employee engagement than just the traditional survey. My cousin sells, sells that uh, exact concept. That, that's what his company, the Happiness Index, uh, he's actually my wife's cousin, but family. Um, that's what they do. They sell happiness. Uh, and really, it's data around happiness. But he says, don't measure it. Don't think of it as a number. Think of it as your weather forecast. Now, is this telling you something that you need to make changes? Like, if, Because you're not happy, as I said, the whole day, every day, all the time. So... Um, you got to recognize that and you've got to recognize people have bad days. But overall, our job as leaders is to ensure that they're happy because if they're coming to, in, to work engaged, they're in the flow, they're actually productive, they're doing a lot. Whereas if they are, are not happy at work, they're not going to be as productive. It's hard to, because it takes energy. Actually, to be happy takes energy and to be down takes and it's a it's a it's, it sucks energy from you which you need to be productive like you need to be awake you need to be conscious you need to understand what you're doing you need to be alive and active in 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 your engagements and in your meetings but if you as you said if you if you don't feel joy you don't feel happiness you're not going to be that so you're not bringing as much to the table as you could and and if if i was a business owner I'd want my people to as much as pop up if like, you know, you're looking at the working day nine to five, if I can get seven hours of great happiness and flow from those people, that's a good day. That's not a bad day. Uh, and if I can get more because they're so in the flow, even better. So why not focus on that then? Yeah, I use um, surveys in the same way. I, I think they're definitely worthwhile and a help for the company as a whole. But for me as an individual manager, um, I want a, a greater steer. And so one of the um, things that I did at the end of the year um, last year was um, I gifted my team um, a copy of a book that I'd published. I thought that's kind of a lame gift. So I wanted to give them a little bit more on top. And so I wrote each one an end of year greeting. And in it, I said, these are the things that I love about working with you. And I gave them what I perceived as their strengths and what really they do that lifts me up. And I had meant for that to be a one-way gift. But of course, I'd forgot that human nature is that we tend to want to reciprocate. So in return, I received an unsolicited, or perhaps because psychology is that way, it was kind of solicited, um, lot of responses that they directed at me. So of course, it wasn't the right time to say, and I hate when you do this, Mary, because of course, it was the end of year, sort of spirits lifting, but it was a really great gauge for me 
in terms of what I should keep doing and what had already been appreciated. And so I think there are lots of little things that we can do to supplement the employee engagement survey. It has use, but for us on an individual level, there might be some other initiatives that we can work on. And I'd recommend at the end of the year, especially if we're still in this remote environment, or in my case, my team works in Germany and I'm in the United States, I felt that, well, from my opinion, that was a great way to to give them a, a little boost at the end of the year and uh, in return receive some feedback about the kind of culture I was creating for my team and how I was showing up as a manager. I think also there's an opportunity there to get a little bit creative. You know, you don't need to send out a whole long 30-question survey that takes everybody 20 minutes to do. Um, that in itself kind of shifts your mind frame about how you're feeling. Um, so I'm sure there's bias in there. But you could also even do just maybe a, a monthly check-in, you know, like a word cloud is really cool where you ask a, a, a simple question, give me a few words that describe how you're feeling, you know, uh, finish it off how you want. And then you can even see visually a word cloud about what's coming out. And then you can even use that in discussions, right? And then everybody yeah. kind of sees that their contribution was there. And it's not done in a way where um, senior management can pick through comments and try to dissect who said what, because I had that happen where a, a, a manager sat with me for 20 minutes because he was convinced I had made a comment, which I hadn't even made. But it made mm -hmm. me feel as an employee like, wow, this is supposed to be anonymous. Why are we spending 20 minutes with everybody's replies and you're pointing to one and you're going through this? So you have to be careful with those tools too, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it's mm -hmm. a double-edged sword. Now, I know we don't have much time left, but I did want to open it up and see, do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners? I'd just echo what you mentioned there. We deployed that as part of our compliance week. Um, so using a two-way feedback mechanism and things like a word cloud, so in person getting people to pop up on a whiteboard, what word do you think of when you hear the word compliance? Because, of course, we always want to be presenting ourselves as being um, a protector, an advocate, a true business partner, not the policeman who always says no. So that what, what they put up was a good gauge for us. Um, asking what do you want more compliance training on? But when you make it part of compliance week and that, you know, they're doing it to get involved in the activities, win prizes, play games, I believe that the feedback is more candid than in potentially a survey when they're consciously thinking about, oh, if I write this, is anyone going to see it? They're like, I just want to participate in this Jeopardy quiz. Um, and so I, I love the idea of making it creative and remembering data analytics that we use to improve ourselves doesn't have to be quantitative that we get from financial data. It can be qualitative. What people think of, a, of us, um, their opinions of, and their experiences, that is valuable to helping us shape the workplace that we want to have moving forward. Just following on from that, I would say changing cultures, uh, if that's what you want to do. Remember, you may not be there at the end of it, end of that journey, because it is a journey but it's about getting started, like things like DEI, things like even adding the humanness back into leadership and into organizations, focusing on people. And then, you know, if you've been in an, if you've been working for 30 years and 20 years of that as a leader doing a certain thing a certain way, it's going to be hard to be told maybe we need to change and flip it completely. So it's sometimes going to be step by step process, but. And if you're in organizations that aren't as receptive to these, but you recognize it, you can build it. Okay, it's not going to affect the overall organizational culture, but you'll create a climate of positivity, engagement, and ultimately your little pod will do well. Just to, to wrap up the both of those comments, I think we undervalue qualitative information. I think stories have such power 
I mean, we've been, you know, as a human species, we've been using stories for forever to communicate. And we, we've devalued that recently, especially in our business circles. We need to start appreciating stories are very communicative. Stories from our workforces can be very communicative of what, as well. So we have to start um, appreciating the stories. Uh, Gary Wong and Nippon and Ond are, you know, that's what they're doing right now. And um, leadership that if we can start to recognize that responsibility centered leadership as opposed to reward centered leadership is the way that we need to start moving. So starting to make sure that we have the difficult conversations, we lean into the danger that we are there to serve as opposed to um, getting more money and getting the nice office and being on the news kind of stuff. Reward centered leadership is not what's going to make our, our organizations healthy and it's not the wave of the future. It's gonna be the responsibility centered leadership that's gonna get us there. Oh, thank you so much. That is all the time we have today, but this was an awesome conversation. So thank you so much for joining me and having this candid conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. Thank you for joining us. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Woman in Safety. If you're looking for our episode notes, please navigate to safepedia.com and you can find them under the podcast menu. And if you're looking for great safety content to share out with your team and your network, go to safepedia.com because we update our safety content daily. Until next time, stay safe.